Well, good morning. Welcome to One Life Community Church. My name is Greg. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here, and it is wonderful to see each one of you. It's good for us to all be together. Uh, I do want to thank you for taking time and making it a priority to be here. We really do appreciate uh, being able to be, be together. Um, with that, with us all being together, let's, let's pray. Dear God, I give you great thanks for your presence for this day. And I, I pray that as we are here together, that you would speak to us, God, that you would move in our hearts and minds in a way that enables us to really engage with you, to really hear from you and see you, and that we would have a genuine moment or an encounter with you this morning. Um, yeah, and I pray in that that you would move in such a way that we would leave here being more like you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are in week six of the season of Lent. It's been uh, mentioned already. The week six of traveling together and sort of exploring the Lenten season. And we've talked about how this word Lent means springtime. Um, and we've been looking at what it means to be growing in our relationships with God. Uh, and we've specifically been looking at how to do that when things are the hardest. And we've identified these things as wilderness moments. Looking back at Jesus' time when he's led by the Holy Spirit into the desert. And then there he's tempted by the devil. Um, and, and so we've identified these as wilderness times, just like Jesus did. And, and what we saw was Jesus pressed into God during that time. Remembered who God was. Remembered who he was. Uh, and he was not only able to survive his time in the wilderness... Uh, but also to deal with the temptations of the devil that he experienced there. And some of us have had those times where um, it, it would feel like being in the wilderness would be enough. That would be difficult enough. But it's not that we're just in the wilderness. We're maybe alone in the wilderness or like Jesus fasting. We're without food. And yet that doesn't seem to be enough. And somehow we're, we're being tempted by the devil in that space also. Um, and even with that, though, the invitation is the same as it was to Jesus, to rely on God, to be faithful to God, no matter how difficult it got, no matter how messy it gets. So that's what we've tried to, to get into a little bit through this Lenten season. And we've been using this thing called the lectionary to do this. And the lectionary is just a collection of scriptures that is set up to be read at a specific point during the year, to, to remind us of different things, to sort of get us in the groove with different, different rhythms that we find within scripture. Um, and it's been fascinating. It's been, it's been wonderful. But this week of Palm Sunday, we're going to transition out of that. Uh, we're gonna, and we're going to move to a different spot. And so we're going to start today uh, in the Gospel of Luke. Um, and, we, and Jesus has been doing all kinds of things. We're going to be in Luke 19, 28 through 44. Uh, it'll be up on the screen behind me if you want to read along there. You can also follow along in your Bible. It's also on the insert that is uh, in your bulletin. So there are plenty of options for you to follow along. So... This is uh, Luke nineteen twenty-eight through 44. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Say, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, well, Why are you untying the colt? And they replied, The Lord needs it. And so they brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks along the road. And when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Now some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Now, this is a traditional Palm Sunday text. And for some of us, this is a story we've heard over and over. We're very familiar with it. And so for some of it, us, it's new. And, and for those of us who have read it before, there is this odd tension because we know what's happening next. We know where this is leading. Jesus is entering into the city. And even though they're celebrating him, he's entering the city to die. So there's this weird tension and almost this numbness when we read it. I find it difficult at times to imagine the celebration that's happening because in my mind, I know what's coming next. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Frederick Buchner, compares it to, to, to when he has watched the video of John F. Kennedy being shot. He says at the beginning of the video, there's this sense of, of triumph, of celebration. There's this, this great entry, but he says, even in my heart, I know what's going to happen, but I find myself trying to envision a different scenario where the shooter misses or, or is found out ahead of time or the car lurches off in some weird direction. But it doesn't. And so this story has this weird tension, again, between this movement between celebration of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem and sorrow and fear as we know where he's headed. Now, as he's heading in, the people are proclaiming that Jesus is king. And then they've got these palm fronds and they're making this tunnel for him and they're waving these at him they are laying down their cloaks and their clothes on the street making this pathway and these are all things that you would do for royalty and they're proclaiming that he is the king and this is actually going to cause all kinds of problems because during jesus's day there was this guy who was the roman governor of that area named Pilate. so he's sort of the the, the ruling guy in jerusalem now his superior is caesar and caesar's a big deal uh, Caesar thought of himself literally as the son of God. He believed that he'd come from heaven to earth, and he wanted people to be aware of his power and his place. And in doing so, he wanted people to be aware of their lack of power and the place that that put them in. Now, Pilate is responsible for making sure Caesar has that reputation in Jerusalem. And so there was all this propaganda that they had, uh, sort of the sayings of the day. One was simply, Caesar is Lord. There was another one that said, There is no other name under heaven by which people can be saved than that of Caesar. Right? That's almost verbatim uh, the same as scripture passages that talk about Jesus. They referred to Caesar as the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. There's a 12-day celebration of his birth, the advent of Caesar. You could bring offerings to Caesar, and he would forgive sort of your external crimes, but there were also opportunities that he would say, I forgive your sins, your internal things. There were coins with pictures of him on it, and they had all these sayings sort of emblazoned on them. Again, Pilate is responsible for maintaining all of this in Jerusalem. Now, throughout the year, there were a couple times when the Jewish people would gather together for big festivals, and the one that's happening right around this same time is Passover. Now, some scholars estimate that Passover would have upwards of 200,000 people gathered together for this festival. And so you have 2,000 people sort of coming into these central places in Jerusalem. 
Now, it's, I don't know if we often see that. Uh, maybe if you were at the, the, the Seahawks parade when they won the Super Bowl, or if you've watched uh, when other countries, when they win the World Cup, because we typically don't, which is sad, but um, we'll get there. Sorry, U.S. team, go. Uh, but um, uh, when you watch these other countries win and people just flood into the cities and they're out for all night and they're yelling and partying and celebrating together, that's the kind of image that, that, that we're looking at. 200,000 people gathered together, celebrating, remembering what God has done. Now, this particular festival of Passover is going to be, uh, is gonna be uh, extra stressful for Pilate because what's happening is the Jewish people are remembering this time when God delivered them from an oppressive government. And so Caesar and Pilate, in this case, being the one responsible for, for maintaining sort of the presence of Rome and the power of Rome in this area, is going to be concerned because he doesn't want uh, them to think, oh, wait a minute, we're actually under an oppressive government right here. And we're remembering that God delivered us from an oppressive government. Maybe he'll do that again. And so Caesar is trying to do things to keep this uh, in control. And so uh, it's interesting because right before Passover, what Pilate would do is he'd have his own parade. And it would start with the, the, a big eagle statue because the eagle was sort of representative of Rome. And what it was saying by having the eagle head in is like Rome is here and everything that Rome is is coming. Next would be a group of Roman soldiers all decked out with fighting gear, carrying shields and swords. And they would also have these banners and these etchings that would have previous Caesars on there and all of their military conquests. And it's sort of this idea that don't even try to resist us because if you do, you're just going to be the next etching, right? You're going to be the next picture that we're showing the next group of people that says, this is what happens to people who work against us. And finally, Pilate would ride in on this big stallion, another symbol of strength, power, conquest. Because for him, it was all about power and domination. And to send the message, don't even think about it. Don't even think of moving against us, against Rome, because what happens is you will be destroyed. Now, the other thing that's interesting about this is Pilate, for his parade, he enters the city from the west. Jesus comes in on a donkey and he enters from the east this donkey was borrowed and i find this section of scripture to be fascinating because um it's kind of a funny story but there's more to it but the, but the silliness of it to me is it would be like someone coming into our parking lot and getting into one of our cars and saying uh when we say why are you taking one of our cars and they'd be like well the lord needs it and that's going fine awesome right because it is there's this feel like you know even the question like Jesus predicts it, which it wouldn't be that hard to predict. If someone comes up and takes your donkey, right, you'd probably ask, why are you taking my donkey? Um, and, uh, but it was actually not uncommon for scholars, and particularly the rabbis, if they needed to travel somewhere, uh, they would sort of borrow someone's donkey. And because they were rabbis and, and held a certain level of integrity, the people would trust that it was going to come back to them. And so that was not totally uncommon uh, for that to happen. But the thing about this is, if we look at Matthew 21, uh, 4 and 5, it says this about the donkey. Uh, this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this is from uh, Zechariah 9, 9 and 10. So if we go look at that, uh, again, this is verse 9 from Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, 
that's, you go, that's amazing. That's this prophecy fulfilled. Uh, but there's also more to it because if you were um, a, a normal Jewish citizen, you didn't just have sort of a passing knowledge of the Old Testament. You actually knew it quite well. And so there would be times where something was read and there would be things before it and after it that you would go, oh, yeah, remember that too? Oh, this is tied with this. Because if we read verse 10... So that was Zechariah 9, verse 9. And here's verse 10. It says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations. He will, his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so we have this other part that's attached to it where we have this donkey prophecy fulfilled, but we also read in the second part that the one who's riding on the donkey is proclaiming peace to the nations. So there's something bigger going on here, and we keep looking at this. I think what we find is that there's two ways to enter the city. We have Pilate coming into Jerusalem from the west on a stallion, ready for war, scared, nervous, feeling defensive. So he's got to flex his muscles. He's got to show his strength and posture up and let everyone know that he's the man and that to try to do anything against him is, is going to get you destroyed. And we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem from the east on a donkey, no weapons, just bringing and proclaiming peace. The other interesting thing is that Caesar and Pilate, there's kind of all this forcefulness into getting them to say, oh yeah, Caesar is king, Caesar is lord, Caesar is this, that, and the other. Jesus has people just lining up, right? People who have been following him, people who are in the area, they just show up and start making these tunnels and palm fronds and laying their clothes out, and there's no sense of Jesus sort of having to flex his muscles to get that to happen. People just do it. There are two ways to enter the city. There's the way of Pilate, and there's the way of Jesus. There are two ways to enter a conversation. There are two ways to treat your spouse. There are two ways to engage with and parent your children. Two ways to engage with and relate to your parents. Two ways to deal with conflict. Two ways to deal with pain. Two ways to treat our friends. Two ways. Pilate's way, horses and war, or Jesus' way of donkeys and peace. I remember uh, a friend of mine. Some of you know that uh, I've been practicing the martial arts for a long time. I have my own school that I run. And uh, one of my instructors told this story about how he was in a bar one night with some friends, and it was getting kind of loud and kind of rowdy. And someone bumped into him and had drinks with him and sort of turned and slammed into him and then yelled at him like, you bleep, 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 how come you made me spill my drinks? Now, my instructor could have done something very violent and could have really caused some damage to this person but what he did instead was simply said ah, i'm sorry that happened let me buy you guys new drinks right and it just diffused it right it was it was just peace after that and everyone went about uh their own business you know that's a cool story but but there's there's more to what we're talking about that's that's an example that starts moving us in the direction but if we're going to follow jesus in his way we're going to find ourselves in kind of the next part of this story. Because Jesus, as he rounds the bend and the road or crests the hill, he sees Jerusalem and it says he weeps. He weeps not because he's going to die or because he's going to be destroyed, but because Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. About 40 years after Jesus dies, Rome destroys Jerusalem. If you had only known what would bring you peace. But they didn't, and so often we don't. Jesus weeps as the one who can bring peace, even one that would surpass being destroyed by Rome. He weeps because they do not hear. 
And as I read this passage, I find myself believing that Jesus must weep a lot as he looks at our world. Jesus weeps for every child that goes hungry, for every person who's told they don't belong or that they cannot be reached by God. He weeps for every lie that is told and for every person who is bent on self-destruction. He weeps for the poor and he weeps for the rich who are seduced into hoarding their wealth. He weeps for every place on earth that is touched by darkness. If only you had known what would bring you peace. If you choose the way of Jesus, you will find yourself not gearing up for war against people, but compassionately and wonderfully weeping for the people around you, even the ones who are bent on destroying you. Again, quoting Frederick Buchner, he's talking about communion here. He says, when we return to our pews after having received communion, sometimes we watch the faces of other people as they return to their seats. Friends, family, strangers, people who we love and people who love us and people that we shut out and they shut us out. But to watch them come back up the aisle time and time again by God's grace, we somehow see them as human beings bound in the same journey as we are, with the same hopes and dreams as we and the same fears and confusion as we. When these times come, it is possible as we watch them move past us to reach out to them in our hearts and wish them enormously well. And strangers and enemies become as precious as friends. If only you had known what would bring you peace. I find it interesting in, in Buchner's quote that he's talking about one of the very things we do that helps us to remember who Jesus is and what he's done and what he is doing. And that somehow in that space, when we're remembering Jesus, we can be transformed to see people differently. We don't see people as something to fight. We don't need weapons, but instead we reach out in our hearts and wish them enormously well. When I was a college student, uh, I was involved in a campus ministry up at Western Washington University, and I was in uh, one of the Bible study groups, and um, we called them core groups like we do here. Uh, and in that core group, um, one of the guys in there had a friend who was visiting uh, from Texas. And, uh, and uh, to be honest, when he first got there, I, I didn't really just naturally bond with him. We'll just call it that. Um, I, didn't, I was feeling a little bit antagonistic towards him. And um, right in the middle of our core group time, he just set out. He, he looked at me and he said, hey, he said, you, you have some issues. I was like, I do now. And I'm feeling like some issues building up in me right now. Uh, and he said, I, I just I feel the Lord speaking to me that sometime soon, maybe in the next five days or so, you're going to have an opportunity to really hurt somebody. And I'm warning you about that right now. And in that moment, you need to call out to Jesus. And I was like, I feel like I need to call out to Jesus right now. Is this the moment you're talking about? Because it's happening right now. Um, I didn't really enjoy that, but uh, just went on because I was trying to be nice and, and move on with things. That weekend, <clears throat> went home, um, and while at home, was running some errands for my parents, and in the process, I, I hit this other car uh, at this intersection. I hit their front driver's side panels, totally my fault, uh, got out of the car. Uh, at this time, I was 21, so I was kind of feeling in my prime at least, um, and uh, I was going over and, and you know, I was going to try to like, is everything okay? I'm really sorry. And the guy got out of his car and walked up to me and just full-on pushed me and then slapped me in the face. And I remember thinking, 
you're done. You're absolutely done. And then I remembered at the same time these words that this guy had spoken to me. And I fell to my knees and began to weep. Just bawl. Now, I don't know, I don't remember thinking a lot of compassion for this person. But somewhere in there, the Holy Spirit was working something in me. Um, and it also worked out that the guy got kind of freaked out because I felt like I was like really overreacting. Uh, at the same time, a bunch of people were like, what did you do to that guy? Um, and so that happening, some policemen were pretty close. And so they were approaching the scene. Uh, and, but it ended up, what happened is this guy was like, I'm so sorry. I don't know what happened. And I said, it's all fine. And the police were like, did he do it? I'm like, no, no, don't worry about it. It's, it's just, it was all peace. Like, it was all peace. And it wasn't at all, like the previous story I told about my instructor, I, I, I'm confident the Holy Spirit was working in there somewhere. But that, that felt more like an expression of just natural willpower, like well-thought-out wisdom, sort of a story you have in your pocket that, that you know when an instant like that happens to you, you can sort of say, oh, I'm going to be like my instructor, and I'm going to try to find this other way. This was completely against my nature and completely against everything I was going to do in that moment. And I bring up the difference in that because what we need in our world is moments where the Holy Spirit moves in us in such a way that we may not have even believed it was possible. If you asked me in that moment if it was possible for me to do what happened there, I would probably say no. But the Spirit of God moved in such a way, a radical way that transformed me to where I saw the people around me, and particularly this guy who my heart was bent on destruction, in such a way that I could not do it. And so my challenge, as I remember Jesus in that moment, as we talked about communion and remembering Jesus, and it transforms the way we see each other, my challenge for us in this Lenten season as we're moving towards Easter is simply to remember Jesus in any way you can. Whether it's reading your Bible, praying, singing a song, going for a walk, taking communion, exercising, whatever it is, making food for someone, whatever. Whatever it is that helps you to remember Jesus, just do it, and do it as often as you can. And then just see what happens. Because I'm convinced that the goodness that is Jesus, and He dwells within us, that goodness will be present in us. Because Jesus is good, and Jesus is able. And as we remember Jesus, we're going to be moved to care for the people around us. We'll celebrate when they celebrate, and we'll mourn with them when they mourn. And we'll be moved to weep for the places in our world that are in darkness, the people who don't know Jesus. Because Jesus was not just moved to weep, but he was moved to die. So that those who did not know peace through being reconnected with God could know him and experience not just peace, but shalom, that all things would be well and right. One Life Community Church, I want to ask you this morning, what, what would our homes our schools, our workplaces, neighborhoods, cities, our state, our country, and our world look like if we started remembering Jesus and everything we did? What could he do if we were participating with him in this work of reconciling all things, not arming for war against people, but moving empowered by the Holy Spirit to enter the city riding on a donkey? I want to invite the worship team back up. I have a couple of questions. We like to wrap up our time with some questions to kind of 
uh, ask either throughout the week or you can answer them on those uh, connection cards. We love getting responses uh, to, to the questions we ask at the end on those. Um, so you could write it on there and then put them in the wood boxes on your way out. But here, here are the questions I just want us to end with. Number one, are there areas of your life where you feel like you are currently entering into the city in the way of Pilate? And what areas are those? Maybe there's a relationship that you're in. You feel like, boy, every time I go talk to this person, I feel like I'm gearing up with my weapons and my armor. I feel like I have to defend myself, and I feel like I have to be ready to attack. Okay, maybe there are areas. What, and second question, what, are there areas of your life that you feel like you are currently entering into the city in the ways of Jesus? Maybe it's the opposite. Maybe there are relationships where you're like, oh, every time I go into this relationship, I just feel like I'm in a sweet spot, and the things I say... They seem kind, and I have genuine kindness and wellness in my heart towards them. There's a work situation that feels like that. Whatever it is, um, what are those areas? Third, what is one thing you can do that helps you remember Jesus? Anything. Anything. What is one thing you can do? And then I want you to try and do that this week. Um, and then lastly, when you look at our world, what makes you weep? And it doesn't have to be like the whole global world. It can be, but in our world, what is one thing that you see that just stirs your heart in such a way that you, you, you genuinely feel moved and weep for that? Um, and the reason I ask that question is then, the next thing is, is, what things will you do to move in that? Because I feel like when we weep over places, it's God stirring in us an invitation to, to participate in, in His presence there. Uh, so, let's pray, and then uh, we'll sing another song.